chapter 17, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Then the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful for all of it, every bit of it. And we do accept uh, your word from your hand as for our instruction and our well-being. And so I pray for your spirit to help us as we think about your word and by your spirit with the truth of your word penetrate our hearts, get into our souls, we pray, that fruit might be born there for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The uh, sermon title this morning is, Why Do We Do This? And uh, that's the question I want to try and answer. Uh, Because I understand that people come from a variety of backgrounds and may not understand, even those who are familiar with uh, the baptism of infants, may not understand why we do it. And those who come from... Other backgrounds uh, where uh, the baptism of infants uh, is not observed, the practice is not observed, uh, you may be wondering why we do this as well. So that's the question I want to answer. And I want to start sort of big picture, if you will, and uh, then move from the big picture uh, down to some specific details uh, of the story. Um, And here's here's uh, an illustration that I hope will... uh, describe for you the big picture. We live in Florida, of course, and and living in Florida, uh, we can't wait for fall and for winter. But if you live up north, you can't wait for spring and summer. 
And a funny thing happens in spring and summer, at least it happened in Michigan and Indiana where I lived a good bit of my life. Um, in uh, March or April, these little green shoots start poking, poking their noses or their heads or their fingers or whatever out of the ground. And uh, after a, a few warm spring rains and a little bit of spring sunshine, those green things that start poking their noses or their fingers or their heads up out of the ground turn into flowers like crocus and daffodils and tulips. Now, here's the funny thing about uh, crocus and, and uh, tulips and daffodils. For those of you who have lived up, lived up north and you know about these things, the thing that goes in the ground bears very little resemblance to the thing that comes out of the ground, right? The thing that goes in the ground, and some people take these things out of the ground uh, in, in late summer and they put them in their freezers, I think. Or so. I, we never did that. We just left them in the ground. But some people actually dig these bulbs up and then they replant them in late fall or early winter. The thing that goes in the ground is this little bulb-like thing. It looks like a bad potato. But the thing that comes out of the ground is extraordinarily beautiful. And it looks like, at first blush, there's no relationship between the thing that goes in the ground and the thing that comes out of the ground. And yet there is a continuity between the two, isn't there? The thing that goes in the ground contains everything that will come out of the ground. And everything that comes out of the ground, that pokes up through the soil, that produces all of this beautiful color, is contained within that bulb that goes into the ground. Now, as I've said to you, um, all analogies do break down. They, they uh, aren't perfect. But that is, I think, a picture in some small way suggestive of the one purpose, the one story, the unity of God's plan which is revealed progressively through the pages of Scripture. Uh, it's important, if, if you're going to understand the Bible, to understand that it is one book. It's not 66 books. It's one story, not two stories, or multiple stories. It is a single story of God's determination to gather a people for Himself in Christ and to secure all of the blessings of relationship with himself through Christ. And what you find in the Old Testament is like that bulb that goes in the ground. Now, it's not, it doesn't look like a bad potato. It's actually quite delightful and quite lovely to consider the things that you find in the Old Testament. But there is a connection between those things that you find in the Old Testament and the things that emerge in greater beauty in more glorious form in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples, and they're appropriate for our consideration of Genesis 17. There is a relationship between the rite of initiation in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, which is circumcision, the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham and which was to be administered to all the males in his household. There's a relationship between that sign and the New Testament sign, which is baptism. There is a relationship between the covenant meal, which is established as the Passover meal in Exodus, a little bit later in the history of God's unfolding purpose. 
there is a relationship between the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted on the Passover night, replacing that Passover meal. There's a relationship between these Old Testament signs and these New Testament signs. There's a big difference. The Old Testament signs are bloody. How come? Well, they are bloody because they're pointing ahead to the greater fulfillment, which is the cross of Christ. And when the blood of Christ is shed, fulfilling everything that is anticipated in that old covenant and bringing in the greater, more glorious, more beautiful, more full expression of God's redemptive purpose, it gives way to bloodless rituals and signs. But there is a correlation. There is a correspondence between the two with the cross at the center. I'll give you another example. There are three offices in in the Old Testament. Three crucial, critical offices by which God directs, cares for, leads, governs his people. They are the offices of prophet, priest, and king. The prophets speak the word of God to the people of God. The priests minister before God in behalf of the people and minister before the people in behalf of God. And the king rules in justice and goodness over the people in the place of God, prophet, priest, and king. And those three offices, they don't go away at the cross. They coalesce, they converge, they come together in the one who is the greater prophet, who is in fact the word of God. He doesn't just receive it and speak it, but he is the word of God incarnate, who speaks everything that he's heard from his father. And when he speaks, he speaks absolute truth. He is the greater priest, who now, as the great resurrected high priest, ministers in the presence of the Father for you, who prays for you, and who by his presence here ministers as a great high priest for the Father to his people. And he's a king. I've been reading in uh, the Samuels about David, and you know, David, David is so wonderfully expressive of the greater king who would come, but he's not a perfect king, is he? And the kingship in Israel, while on the one hand describing what the perfect king would look like, also creates in the hearts of the people the longing for that greater king because the kings in Israel were so frail and so faulty. And what the people needed was a perfect king, a truly good and just and righteous king. And that is what God has given us in Jesus. And so those offices coalesce in their greater expression, no longer divided, but united in the one prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. There is a continuity in the scriptures. There are patterns that are established, and as those patterns are established, they persist, they are perpetuated through the generations and across the millennia among God's people. So that's the big picture. That is simply... Uh, a way of, of sort of describing for you a context into which this sacrament of baptism fits. Now let's come down to the details, the details that have to do with Abraham and the project, particular trajectories that are set uh, in Abraham's life. And there are three things that you want to observe um, about Abraham. 
And the first of them is this, and this is so very important. It's important for Brad and Carrie. It's important for them to understand with respect to Bradley and Hannah. It's important for you to understand this morning who are here. The first of them is this. God initiates. God takes the initiative with Abraham. God acts in mercy toward Abraham. Don't ever lose sight of that. Remember where Abraham came from. Abraham came from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, Ur of the Chaldeans was a place to use biblical metaphors and imagery, which uh, we can sort of keep at arm's length. Abram came from a place of darkness and death. But to get a little bit closer, he came from a place of paganism and idolatry. And perhaps to get a little bit closer, he came from a place of rebellion and resistance to the one true God. So what you need to remember about Abram is that he wasn't neutral. He loved Ur. He loved darkness. He loved idolatry. He was not the seeker. God was the seeker. Abram was not the finder. God was the finder. It's interesting if you go back to the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, Abram's father, Terah, leaves Ur and leaves with his son and some other members of the family and interestingly enough sets out for Canaan. But he stops in a place called Haran, which is about 550 miles to the north and west, a little bit farther up into the Fertile Crescent from Mesopotamia, where Abram was from originally. The language of the text is very interesting. He settles in Haran. He settles there. He settles down in Haran. He takes up residence in Haran. Uh, the archaeologists, the people who do this kind of a historical research, tell us that Haran was sort of the capital city of moon worship. And Terah liked it there. And so did Abram. And Abram would have stayed there for the rest of his life, content to remain in Haran if chapter 12 and verse 1 had not happened. Where the God of Abraham speaks to Abram and says, and it is a command and the language is forceful, get up, leave. Leave your family, leave your home, and go to the land that I will show you. God is the seeker, if you will. And God called Abraham and summoned him out of Haran. And because his call is an irresistible call, think back about all of the things we've been talking about with respect to the creation. When God spoke, it stood fast. When God spoke, it happened. When God spoke, it was ordered. When God spoke, it was filled with his glory. His speech is irresistible speech. I think this is something that's difficult for us to get as people who live in a democracy. We don't understand kings. We don't understand people with absolute authority. If you look at the Virginia state flag, there is a picture in the, in the center of that flag 
there is a picture of a person with a sword who has just cut off the head of a king. And the caption in Latin is Sic Semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants. That's how we view kings. We think kings can be resisted. We think their commands and their speech can be resisted. But God is a king whose speech will not be resisted. A good bit of pastoral wisdom here is when God speaks, listen. Remember E.F. Hutton? Forget E.F. Hutton. Don't pay attention to E.F. Hutton. When God speaks, listen. God's speech has power. God's speech is irresistible. God's speech requires us that we hear and obey. And that is the nature of God speaking to Abram. He called him. And because his speech is irresistible, his call is irresistible, his summons is irresistible, Abram left. He left his family. He left what was familiar. He got up and he went. Let me put this to you slightly differently. If you look at this through the lens of the cross of Christ, and if you think in language of the New Testament, Abram is dead in his trespasses and sins. He is powerless, he is helpless, he is hopeless, he is disinterested, he is all of those things. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved Abram, God, who is rich in mercy, raised him from the dead gave him eyes to see, gave him ears to hear, so that when God commanded, Abram heard the summons, and he left and followed. Brad and Carrie don't come here this morning because they were smart enough to figure out the gospel. Brad and Carrie don't come here this morning because they were smart enough to seek after God, smart enough to repent and follow Christ. Brad and Carrie, like Abram and like Lazarus, were dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made them alive and given them ears to hear so that when God summoned, they came. And don't let, I know this is hard, but don't let that pretty baptismal gown fool you. Hannah is a daughter of her first parents. She is a daughter of Adam. She is a daughter of Eve. And just as David acknowledges In Psalm 51, that he was conceived and born in sin. This precious child, in her beautiful white symbolic baptismal gown, was conceived and born in sin and needs the same invading, intervening, powerful operation of God by his Holy Spirit so that all of the promises that are contained in this sacrament might be hers.
forever. First thing is that Abram was summoned and called by God into relationship with himself. But then the second thing that we've already seen hinted at is that God gave him a sign, a sign of that relationship. Uh, A covenant really is simply an agreement. And in this particular covenant, Abram, who was passive, was the recipient of God's operations on his soul, who was the recipient of God's summoning. Abram now comes into relationship with God. And in that relationship, God gives to Abram responsibilities. He makes promises of extraordinary blessing. You can go back to Genesis 15 to see what it is that God promises to Abram, that he will defend him, that he will protect him, that he will be his very great reward. He promises him descendants. He promises him a land. And as Hebrews 10 makes very clear, the land that is promised to Abraham is far greater and far more significant than a strip of of real estate along the eastern side of the Mediterranean. Abram was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Abram was looking for the eternal habitations. Abram, who was a wanderer, a temporary resident, was looking for the eternal city, not an earthly land, but looking beyond the earthly down payment to the heavenly land. God made that promise to Abram and made it to all of Abram's true descendants. But in gathering Abram to himself and in establishing this covenant with him, he also, chapter 17, verse 1, places Abram under responsibility and says to him, walk before me and be blameless. And so the sign that God gives to Abram The sign is a seal, both of God's promises to Abram, but it also represents Abram's responsibilities. And so there's a double signification in this sign. A sign always points to something else. It always points to something deeper, more real, doesn't it? I wear this ring on my left hand. Many of you have them. The ring is a sign of something. It symbolizes something. It points to the fact that there is a union between my wife and me. The sign always points to something greater. And whether circumcision or baptism, the sign always pointed to something beyond. It always pointed to a spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, the renewal of the heart, the cleansing of the heart. And so there's a sign, and this sign has this dual signification. On the one hand, it's a sign of great, great blessing. It is a sign of a cleansing. It's a sign of renewal. It's a sign of promise. The promise that God would be God to this covenant child, and even to this covenant child's descendants and generations. But just as Abram was placed under obligation, so Hannah Ann is placed under obligation. And she has a responsibility before God to walk faithfully before him and to be blameless. The first command that Hannah is to embrace, the first thing that she is to believe, and the first article that her parents will teach her 
the first thing they will pray for her to understand, the thing they will pray that she will never not know the truth of. The first article is her own condition as a sinner in need of the redeeming, restoring grace of Jesus. And the counterpart to that is an understanding of Jesus as the one who can cleanse her and renew her and forgive her and change her and transform her and make her into the champion that we pray every covenant child will be. And so there is, on the one hand, the promise of great blessing, and there is, on the other, this great responsibility that Brad and Carrie and Hannah and Bradley assume as members of this covenant family. And with those responsibilities, there is a warning And the warning is simply this. For those who are in the covenant, who are of the covenant, who do not heed the obligations, who do not assume the responsibilities of the covenant, rather than having sin cut off, rather than having uncleanness removed. As verse 14 of Genesis 17 so clearly puts it, it is the rebellious child of the covenant, the rebellious son or daughter in Israel who will be cut off and who will be removed. That's why it's so urgent that you as members of this church pray for Brad and Carrie, that they would be faithful. That's why it's so urgent that you pray for Hannah Ann. That's why it is so important that we call upon God to be faithful to promises that he has made so that he will hear our prayers so that Hannah Ann will hear the instruction that her parents give, so that she will grow up knowing, hearing, and loving these things all the days of her life. There is great blessing symbolized in this, but there is great responsibility. And then here's the third thing. As we've already suggested, the sign is a sign and a promise not only for an Abraham and a Sarah, but it is a sign and a promise for our children and for our children's children and for their children after them. God has multiple generations in view when he establishes this covenant, first with Abram and Sarah and then across the generations with other covenant households. The promise here in Genesis 17 is for Abraham and his seed. Joshua, at the end of his life, stands in the midst of Israel and asks Israel, whom will you serve? Will you serve the gods of your fathers on the other side of the river, or will you serve the Lord? And Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua stands for his whole household in committing his household in keeping with this precedent established in Genesis. Stands for his whole household. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, envisions four generations. Again, that's in keeping with this trajectory that is set. And when you come to the New Testament in Acts 2, as we mentioned, the promise, Peter says, is for you and your children after you. 
As you go deeper into Acts, Acts chapter 16, Lydia is converted out of her paganism. God opens her heart. The Philippian jailer is converted out of his unbelief and idolatry. And not only are Lydia and the Philippian jailer baptized, but they are baptized with their households. All of the people in those households receive this greater sign. And in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and following, Paul says that the children of a believing parent are sanctified. That is, they are set apart. They stand in a peculiar relationship to the God of that believing parent. And what is the nature of that peculiar relationship? Well, it is that covenantal relationship where God was doing in Corinth what he had done in Philippi and what he had done long, long centuries before when he summoned Abram out of darkness and death in Ur of the Chaldees and called him to himself. And so children stand in this distinct and different relationship to God because of their connection to him through believing parents. And so just as the sign for centuries was administered to sons in Israel, so the sign is administered to the children of believing parents. I really think that even those who don't practice infant baptism still get it. They still get it. They still understand this. If I can have fun with you for just a minute. And the reason I know they understand it, the reason I know they understand that their children are, in a very real sense, extensions of themselves, is because even in those places where infants are not baptized, they are dedicated. And now there's no scriptural warrant for infant dedication unless you want to consider a dedication a dry baptism. But we understand this. We understand intuitively, instinctively, that when God is doing something with us, he is doing something with the succeeding generations. And that is the the pattern that you see established beginning with Abram, continuing across the generations, continuing across the centuries, through the New Testament and down to the present. God builds his people in two ways. He builds his people in two ways. First, by calling Abrahams and Sarahs. Barb and I are an Abraham and a Sarah. He called us out of darkness. But then he builds his people through those whom he calls to himself by making these promises and by being faithful through so many generations to call the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren of those whom he had initially called. Hang out with some Dutch people sometime. You'll see it. You'll see it. So why do we do this? We do this because God has established this pattern. It's one story. The practices are consistent. The nature of things does change from the old to the new. The lesser gives way to the greater. 
the less attractive, less appealing gives, gives way to the more glorious, the more beautiful, the more wonderful. We baptize children because we understand them to be members of this covenant community and heirs and heiresses of the promises that God has made to us as parents. We practice this because God places us under responsibility as parents to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to grow up to be faithful members and citizens of this kingdom which he is establishing in the midst of the earth. And across the generations, in family after family, in case after case, God has shown himself faithful to those promises. And for that, we thank God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, so much for your word. Thank you so much uh, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you take the initiative and you persist in taking the initiative with us, with our children, with our children's children, so that you might be praised so that you might be adored. Lord, our prayer this morning, again, is that you in our midst would show yourself faithful. There are parents here with children, and we ask you to be mindful of those children of all ages. There are people here with grandchildren, and we ask you that you would be faithful to those grandchildren. We ask you that you would bring glory to yourself by raising up new generations of those who will love you and delight in you and assume these responsibilities of the covenant gladly to walk before you all the days of their life. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.